thanks for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. And it's great to catch up with Christian Torborg, who's very well known in the field. And it's our first podcast with BJSM with Christian. Thanks for joining, Christian. Thank you very much, Karen, for having me. Let's talk about loading, which is one of your favourite topics and the important role of exercise in musculoskeletal conditions. Do you think the field has moved more that way? Do you think physios are more aware of that, maybe less keen on some of the other therapies um, over the last 10 years of your experience? Oh, definitely. I think physios are becoming more and more aware that that uh, it's very, very important to understand loads uh, in, in, in the athletes, but also understand how you can address uh, loads in relation to whether they're too high or if they're too low and how to actually uh, combine your treatment so that it takes that into account. And your group has been influential. I mean, there have been some key papers that have made those points, some about Scandinavia. Which are the ones that you would highlight for junior researchers to think about if they're looking at the history? Like, where's the evidence? What papers, including your own, would you say have made a difference in the field? I think that for younger physios, what most younger physios probably don't realise is that there was that there was a big paradigm shift in the in the end of in the end of the 90s uh, and especially uh, the beginning uh, in the beginning uh, the papers here was the papers by Alfredson but also the papers from our group from Hulmik where uh, they introduced exercise in relation to chronic problems sort of tendon overuse in the groin but also Achilles tendon overuse and I think the big paradigm shift was that these uh, tendons were treated uh, passively before whereas now we actually started to introduce exercise therapy as, as an approach to to manage these problems and it, they turned out to have a very very good effect and uh, especially it was interesting also to see that something that uh, had almost been contraindicated before so actually had a very good effect yeah it's a good point you know there was a feeling that because it was an overuse in quotation marks injury you had to rest it um, but clearly that's not the case now so what are the exciting things that you've discovered about exercise in research and clinically I think what we have worked with uh, in research and also from a clinical perspective is, is to understand what is optimal loading. And uh, optimal loading has been defined uh, before as load applied to structures that actually maximizes physiological adaptation. So what we have tried to do at our center is try to understand uh, what are the specific loads goals uh, in order to try to increase tensile strength, uh, collagen reorganization, uh, maybe increase the muscle tendon unit stiffness uh, and, and so forth. How do you do that? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that come up as a, as a really uh, effective uh, treatment or modality is of course strength training. So we've been working with strength training for many years and in many forms. And uh, I think especially strength training has been useful in relation to tendon disorders. Uh, and and what is is interesting in relation to optimal loading is that we need to understand uh, magnitude and frequency rate and rates and duration uh, in relation to the exercises we actually uh, are using. So we have been uh, working with these elements for a long time now and try to optimize it. Uh, in a healthy population at first, but then also include that in in clinical populations. Uh, and uh, I think one of the main thing is that you actually have to have uh, a certain strain magnitude. So you have to have high loads, uh, and they have to exceed the habitual value of what uh, your patient or your athlete will will just endure by simple running. For for instance, in the Achilles, so you need to get about above those two to 
3% strain that you actually uh, get from, from running, for instance. And what happens when they get that stimulus? Is some basic science that underpins that, isn't there? Yeah, there's some good uh, basic science that actually... I mean, we don't know exactly what happens in the tendon, but what we can see is that it actually stimulates the tendon so that it becomes stiffer. And so we're actually improving the, the, uh, the, spring, uh, of, uh, the, and the spring element of the tendon. When you have uh, cyclic loading, you need to make sure that uh, the time under tension is, 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 is sufficient as well. So we've been working with time under tension, and it seems that uh, you need two or three seconds under loading to get an optimal response to tendon. Whereas if you just get these high peak lows as when you're running and sprinting, it seems that the, the tendon does not uh, adapt in a, in a similar way. And do you think that's why the slow loading had, may be important? I think that's one of the reasons why, why the slow loading is, is very important. And I think what these studies have shown also from our center is that that actually does something to the, uh, to the, to the matrix and to the, to the general turn, turnover and the synthesis of the collagen, uh, whereas also just classical eccentrics uh, actually doesn't seem to do the same at, at, at the cellular level of the tendon. So I think the main point is not whether the contraction mode is concentric or eccentric. The tendon can't tell the difference. The, the main point is that you have to have sufficient high loads and you have to have sufficient time under tension. And of course, we have a history of, of these uh, heavy uh, exercises where we also had the Nordic uh, eccentric exercise that was also uh, sort of not developed at our center, but came actually from Iceland uh, to Norway, where they did an observational study, uh, where we could see that this was very, very effective in reducing hamstring injuries. Yeah, so the summary is that physios might have underloaded in the 1990s or early 2000s. Yeah, I, I, we definitely underloaded in the 90s because we didn't load at all, almost, for, for many of these conditions. And I think I would, I would probably suggest that we're probably still underloading a bit. Uh, we understand that we have to load, but we can see in some of our studies that, that, uh, that, that when we test specific exercises that are often... Um, proposed by clinicians or, or other people as good exercise, we often can see that we don't get enough loading and we don't get uh, loading rates uh, that are high enough to actually induce some of the changes that we want uh, from a more basic perspective. Um, we have done, we've done studies also. I think one of the other issues is that we have to realize that we then, when we then give these exercises to athletes or patients and tell them to do them X number of times, uh, often they don't do as much as we actually uh, want them to do. And how do you get them to do better? So the, you can sort of say that the pill we're actually giving them, they're only getting 15 to 20% of, of that load. So I think that's, a, that's an area that we need to move into. I think, of course, everyone can say, but what do you do about that? I think the first thing is to actually understand how much load are they actually getting and what is the clinical result coupled uh, to, to that load. Now, applying these principles that you've said to the clinician, um, what, what are the sort of take-homes for them so far, and you're a clinician as well, um, before we get on to some, some screening and prevention of injuries? But I think if someone's listening and they're going, okay, Christian says I need to have more time under tension, Christian says I need to load for longer periods of time, um, how do they... How do they know how high to go? That's a common question, isn't it? Yeah, that's a very common question. I think uh, I think so. 
well, the, the main thing I think is is to make sure that your patients are, are, are doing as much as possible. So you, you, you want to reach that dose that you actually prescribed. And uh, as the study showed, that can be very difficult. I think it's important not to despair if that doesn't happen. I mean, what we can also see in our studies is despite the fact that they, 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 they don't get the 100% of load that we prescribe, they actually have good results in relation to that they improve their strength. We can also see we just published a, a, a review on uh, on uh, the FIFA 11 programs where, we, where when you look into how much they actually did, and this is in relation to preventing football injuries, we, we can see that even though... Uh, only 50% uh, of the teams uh, did approximately one session a week, whereas they were actually prescribed two sessions a week. The prevention program is actually very effective. The clinicians often want to know about pain, so do you use a pain scale? The, the most important thing is that you can get an excess get your exercise through and they actually do it with good quality and uh, we usually do zero to ten rating of pain uh, and we of course want to be in the low end but I, I think there's this no one has really shown that that just because an exercise is painful that means that it has that it doesn't have an effect but of course we, we want to control this and usually on a zero to ten uh, scale we would definitely say that from zero to two on a numeric rating scale, that's completely safe to, to exercise at that level. And sometimes they can even go a little bit high. It depends very much on the response uh, after the training and the day after as well, especially when you talk about overuse injury. We don't want to, we don't want that the, uh, that the injury is, is, it feels worse the next day. Now, I can't help having a bit of dual cook in my head, um, Christian, and we were talking about slow exercises and the emphasis on quality. Um, and that's fine, but I'm sure that as patients progress through your rehab, you adapt the exercises towards the return of sport phase. But can you spell that out for our listener? Yes, I think that's that's a very good point. I think definitely clinically, that's that is very very important that we that we have a specific plan and a specific sort of loading set up for how we will progress them back to sport, and it has to have. Uh, specific elements of that sport and we need to include uh, stretch shortening cycles if that is an, an important element. The only thing I think I would add to this is that I don't at the moment and in uh, uh, with the research we have and in the literature there's nothing to indicate that that uh, that part of the rehab is actually doing a lot to, to the tendon itself because you're actually getting those high peak loads. So I would probably I would consider that being more the return to sport phase that we need to work on at where it's very much about uh, coordination and 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 specificity in relation to the sports. Whereas I think the actual the structural part, the, the part where we actually improve tendon uh, structure and reorganize collagen, or even work at the muscle level where we're trying to to uh, increase maybe fascicle length. I think that that needs to be very specifically addressed. And sometimes we actually need to to do, do that in a very uh, sort of isolated environment and then we need to bring that back into function. Well, thanks a ton. Let's move to prevention of injuries and working in teams, um, screening, sort of early identification of overuse injuries. Clinicians are empowered to do that. What, what's your take when you're being hired to prevent injuries? What's your approach? This is, I think... Uh, something that is really evolving at the moment. I think we've known now for 
for almost 20 years that we had to change our practice and the paradigm in relation to patients coming in with chronic problems. Uh, I think now I think where we are moving towards is that we actually also understand that if you get a tendon problem or a long-standing uh, muscle problem, that that could be very, very difficult to treat. So I think one of the things I would definitely advise everyone to do is to identify these injuries as early as possible. And uh, the only challenge with, with that is that that probably sounds easier than it is. Uh, most people know that if you have an overused problem in a club, then often these players can play for a long time. Uh, even though they have uh, symptoms and pain, they, often, they can often perform still and they often still will make the team uh, but i think this is the real challenge and this is where i think we need to change our strategy so i think in order to to avoid these problems becoming uh, so chronic and long-standing that they become very very difficult to treat and sometimes are not treatable uh, then i think we need to address them quickly with load management so it means that we have to uh, try to see if we can uh, either stop an activity that makes people worse or use the load immediately to see if we can uh, improve their capacity to actually meet the demands of the sport again before they actually develop a chronic problem. And what's the specific thing that, that triggers you to know that their, their injury is starting? Do you wait for pain or do you do strength monitoring prospectively? I think... I think we have, we have published uh, different papers in relation to groin pain and and what we can see in some of our studies where we've actually asked them in relation to uh, whether they had problems in, in the previous season what we can see is that those players who actually report that they've had pain uh, for more than two weeks so when it becomes three weeks uh, four weeks five weeks and six weeks that's when they start to to uh, develop problems that becomes more and more difficult to overcome in, in the long run for, because what we can see in our study is that that is actually related to their status in the beginning of the new season so if they had it for uh, only one to two weeks they actually uh, usually do better in the beginning of the new season in relation to if they had it for more than six weeks then what we often see is that when they come back after the holidays and start up the pre-season a lot of them still have problems so i think if you can identify it early so that means within the first one or two weeks and it, it doesn't mean that they are that they will tell you that they are so bad they can't perform it but if you have different uh, it could be just uh, by taking a history, just do a, a quick clinical exam uh, that you actually identify that they have some irritation in the tissues, but also when you ask them that they say, yes, I, I am a little bit irritated in the tissue and it doesn't just settle straight after practice. And that's where you actually should sit down and make a plan with these players also together with the coach. It sounds like you need to be asking them either questions or examining them regularly to have that communication exactly that would be on a weekly basis so if you're in a club where you actually can address them on a weekly basis so is that that would particularly work well in the in the professional environment although i know that the challenge in the professional environment is that is to make professional athletes actually to get them to take these small niggles and things that are not that serious yet to take that very seriously and while we're on these practical issues for clinicians, often the patient presents during the season when they finally are breaking down and the pain is, is too bad. What's the evidence for success of trying to rehabilitate with exercise and optimal loading during the season, in season? 
so I think that's that's where we're struggling a little bit at the moment, and uh, I'm really looking forward to the study from Norway where we are trying to include this uh, heavy uh, strength exercise, the Copenhagen adduction exercise, and we will see how that turns out. But uh, if you look in the literature and, and what has been recently uh, or the, the last 10 years, it's actually been very, that's where the, the big challenge is. There's only a few randomized studies on this topic, uh, and they've been struggling to incorporate uh, a heavy strength program uh, on, on elite athletes, uh, where it actually looks as if you, if you on top of all the activities they're doing, all include uh, a prevention program that could have an eccentric component for the, for the patellar tendon, or it, uh, and this has been shown both in football in Denmark, but also on volleyball players in Norway, it actually seems that you, that you tend to make them a little bit worse. So again, in relation to optimal loading, we have to understand that, uh, that we are now actually increasing, uh, we're putting extra loads on, on, on athletes who are already uh, overloaded. So again, I think that's an important point that we need to find a balance on how we can reduce loads and then build them all up also during the season. So I think this is where there's really room for improvement and I really welcome a lot of researchers to go into this area to try and address these problems during the season. I'm sure you know about the Norwegian approach with their Olympic athletes where they have an app and they text message patients weekly. It's the Ben yep. Clarsen Oslo sports trauma yep. thing. Is that a good idea? That could be definitely be an uh, an opportunity also clinically to try and implement that. We've we've worked together with them on a recent project again uh, where we looked actually at, at groin injuries in particular, and we actually get a very good response rate. So I'm I'm positive uh, that that you could use uh, that also uh, in the clinic. Um, I'm I'm sure. I think what is useful and what we've done with athletes in relation to groin injuries is that we have sort of. Um, introduced uh, as just a simple squeeze test where you actually just put your elbow and your arm uh, between the legs uh, at the ankles and just let them squeeze as hard as they can and again let them rate from 0 to 10 how how that feels in the groin and and we can see that that actually relates really well to their hip and groin status uh, and and their Hager score at, at that particular point. So again, that's a very quick screen that you can do. I think the good part about that is that there's a reliable but active component that actually stresses the tissue. And you can do uh, have similar approaches, I think, in the in the shoulder or, or, or for the patellar tendon or the Achilles tendon, but you need to have a standardized procedure that actually provokes the tissue and in order to be able to measure and try to understand how severe is it on a scale from 0 to 10. And with your reductive squeeze test, what's your cutoff, what draws attention? I think that's where we have introduced uh, these different um, uh, sort of uh, this traffic light approach where you have from zero to two, we call that the green light. So if they say they have a one, we, we usually they're, they're fine to play. Uh, but as soon as they go up and say they have three, four or five, that's when you should start paying attention to, to, to the problem. And again, if they have above five, so from six to ten, that's usually when, when we would suggest that you stop the activity. And the reason why we, we what we base this upon is the, the, the relation to the Hager score, where we can see that when you go above five, you actually have a very poor uh, Hager sports score. So we can see that that actually relates to 
uh, how they feel in the hip and groin at that particular moment uh, to a level where you would not feel conf- uh, confident that they should actually be playing. Thanks, Christian. So let's just wrap it up with a couple of um, previews for folks. Um, Sport Congress in Denmark. Some people will be listening to this before that Congress on February 2 to 4, and others will be listening to it afterwards. What are you looking forward to? Oh, I'm looking forward to all the uh, the, uh, the the amazing speakers that we've been able to um, to invite, and who's I would say that almost 100% of the invitation has been uh, accepted. And I think for a small country like Denmark, that's amazing that we can get people from all over the world, and they're actually willing to come to to what I would say is still quite a small congress in in relation to uh, participants. We're usually around 500 people. But I would say where the scientific level is, is very, very high and where we also want to raise the, the, the practical level and especially try to bridge the gap between science and and and, 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 and clinic. Uh, and we this year we've particularly focused on the workshops. So one of the things that I get a little bit annoyed from when I go to conferences all over the world is that when you go to a workshop, very often it's just an, a normal podium presentation. So we really reinforce that we want the workshops to be active. We, uh, we want people to to uh, engage and there has to be a practical component and something that people people can take home with them uh, and start in their clinics on Monday. And congratulations because you're the scientific uh, committee chair and also to Karen Kotila, Danish physio group, sports physio group, doing great work. And you've got a trip to Australia in April. What's that one about? So, yeah, that was an invitation uh, starting out with uh, actually Paul Vicentini from uh, uh, from Brighton Sports Physio Clinic, uh, who invited me to be part of a hip and groin symposium. And then uh, I, I actually did my postgraduate uh, master's in, in sports physiotherapy in Melbourne. So I know quite a lot of uh, people in Melbourne and also some of all the famous physios, including Kay Crossley and Joanne Kemp. So we, we contacted them uh, to do the symposium together, but also I'm going to be part of their uh, the Latrobe uh, research activities during April uh, 2017. So I'm really looking forward to that. Great, and BOSM is happy to promote these resources for clinicians around the world and also to point to free resources online like the Aspartat Journal, which um, has your work and um, lots of work on hip and groin as well. Christian, let's leave it there for today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Cameron. And you're listening to Christian Torberg, who's an Associate Professor at Copenhagen University internationally renowned for his work on hip and groin and he's a clinician scientist who does a great job of connecting the quality evidence with what we need to do in clinics he's active on twitter and thanks for joining this particular bjsm podcast please share it with your friends have a great day